So we met on this topic three weeks ago, and then I was sick the week after that. And then it was Purim, and we had a beautiful Purim teaching last week. So now we can resume on our topic, which is the stranger and the other in uh, Jewish teaching. And um, this is a source sheet. Who was here last time? Oh, good. Okay. Okay, so this source sheet, I pulled all the references to ger. Ger is the Hebrew word for the stranger. The stranger might better be translated as the resident alien in the context of the Torah. And I'll repeat that. <clears throat> Over time in Jewish history, as Judaism transformed from a, uh, uh, a people living in the land of Judea to a scattered group who identify as much through religious affiliation as national affiliation, the meaning of ger actually changes. So if somebody says to you today, uh, that person is a ger, they mean that person is a convert to Judaism. So the, um, the uh, context of being a resident alien, uh, a green card holder, you know, a citizen, uh, changes as Judaism changes over the millennia. Uh, but for our purposes, I wanted to look first at not, how, not the, how Judaism treats the convert, which is what ger now means in Jewish religious language. But I want, us, I want us to look at, and this is what we did last time and we'll continue to do this time, how the Torah treats the ger, where the ger is not a convert, but the ger is a resident alien. Uh, meaning someone who's not, part, who's not a citizen. Again, citizen's a very modern concept but I think it's useful to use it. Someone who's not uh, an American citizen, someone who's not a Judean, uh, you know, someone, but who lives amongst us and who works amongst us and who pays taxes and who, um, uh, you know, is a law-abiding law -abiding non-citizen. I think that's the best way to describe a ger, a law-abiding non-citizen. Jonathan, ger and goy related or not? Goy means nation. And um, that's all goy means. So when we talk about the goyim, it means all the other nations. And again, that, that translates over time into the goyim, meaning someone who's not Jewish. Uh, but it's not the same context as ger, uh, because it because ger specifically refers to the non-Judean who lives and works amongst us and is, for in all intents and purposes, part of our collective, except that they are not part of the tribe. Um, so that's what we're talking about, just since it's been a few weeks, and. On this handout, last time, we discussed how Jewish identity is founded in the Torah on our having been gerim, strangers in a strange land. 
And that, uh, to me, it's very profound that that's how we self-describe. That's how we describe ourselves as people who, where we constantly remind ourselves that we were strangers. And therefore, we were powerless. And therefore, how are we going to run our society now that we have our own uh, sovereignty? And so I said also last time that more than any other instruction, commandment in the Torah is the commandment to not mistreat the ger. And I said last time that uh, I think that's partly because uh, the laws that are repeated the most... Hi, Steve. Do you need the handout again? Uh, yes, Next week, we're going to move on to another text, but I wanted to use this again today. Um, what was I saying? Not mistreatment. Oh, yeah. So one reason why it's, why it's uh, repeated so often, is, as I said last time, is because uh, the laws that are the... M- hardest to observe are the ones that get repeated over and over and over again. Um, that's like being a classroom teacher, you know, and what do you say the most? You know, you say sit down and be quiet the most, you know. <laughs> that's, that's because it's the hardest thing for the kids to do. What do you, guess, yes, Gail? I just thought of something I've never thought of, which is that the references we keep making are being slaves in Egypt. Mm-hmm. We weren't really gay, we were slaves. We were, we were, but our status was that of Gare. Was it? Okay. Yes, because we were not Egyptians. Okay, but what just occurred to me is that the Torah was put together around the time of the Babylonian exile, mm-hmm. where we definitely were Gare. Right, right. We were, I mean, we, did, we were not a slave, and we were resident aliens. That's right. And that must have had enormous resonance at the time it was being put together. A That's right. Resident. I never thought of this, so it just occurred to me, so I'm saying it. So most scholars think that the Bible was put together, the Torah as we know it, comes into a form that we would recognize during the exile in Babylonia. Yeah. And so there we are, an exiled people, right. putting together our story. Right. Um, so yes, yes, it might very well have a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, so, again, last time we discussed um, that uh, the way that uh, the Torah has one law for the stranger and for the citizen alike. And that means that the stranger has um, human rights, right? Uh, that they are to be they are to be treated as an equal under the law. That doesn't mean they have exactly the same status as the Israelite, but they can't willy-nilly be treated like crap. Right? That's against the law. And uh, I think that's profound. And it's explicit. And it's repeated. Take a look. See the one law... um, Boldface midway down through the first page. Yeah. 
We'll turn to the second page and to the third page. These are all the references to the to- in the Torah which explicitly say the stranger has to be treated in the same way as the citizen. Um, and uh, here we can read, we can read a, a few of them. Um, uh, well, let's see, starting on the front page. So we discussed last time, seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a sojourner, which is another word for ger, another translation, or one that is born in the land. So if you're a ger, you can participate in the Passover. Um, And then it says, and when a stranger shall sojourn with thee, and will keep the Passover to yod let all his males be circumcised, and let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as one that is born in the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. One law shall be to him that is home-born, and unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. So if male circumcision is in effect um, an identity badge, it's con- th- this is it's right this is before the idea of conversion so this means becoming part of the tribe uh, um, but your status is still that of uh, you're not considered a Judean but having taken the sign of the covenant you're considered in all respects included yeah Well, let's look at a couple of these. Okay. Um, okay, I, I uh, turn the page to the second page, the back of the first page. Um, uh, look at the fourth one, Leviticus twenty-five forty-seven. And if a stranger who is a settler with thee be waxen rich, and thy brother be waxen poor beside him, and your brother sell himself unto the stranger, in other words, indenture himself, which is how, what you did if you went bankrupt. That's, how, that's the way the Torah works. You do it for six years. Um, and he sell himself unto the stranger who is a settler with thee, or to the offshoot of a stranger's family. After that he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brethren may redeem him. Okay, so if an Israelite uh, becomes indentured to uh, a um, stranger, to a, uh, a resident alien, uh, the, the um, Israelite can be redeemed, bought. Their debt can be paid off and they can be bought and um, uh, liberated from their indentured status, from the stranger. If they become indentured to a fellow Israelite, it's a different con- condition. So there's conditions of how Israelites treat Israelites that are different than how strangers, even if uh, uh, have status. It's like 
legal stuff, really. Uh, Nora, did you want to say something? No, it's just so if, um, if it's the other way around, the, uh, the stranger, the gayer, will never become part of the tribe. It doesn't matter, even if he's owed money or... That's right. In ancient Israel, there was no way to become an Israelite in that regard. You could become, and so a whole category develops in the Second Temple period called your A Adonai, meaning God-fearers, who are, in all respects, participating members of the community. They go to the temple, they celebrate the festivals, uh, and, um, uh, but they're not considered Jew, Judeans, because Judean was at that time still a tribal identity, not a religious identity, so that, or not a religious national, it was a national identity, but not a national slash religious identity, so it's only after the destruction of the temple in the first and second centuries that, it, that the that gear starts meaning someone who converts to Judaism. It's really interesting when you think about it historically how, um, and I, I think I was saying this last time too, how depending on how our social political organization is as a people uh, depend, changes the status of how you become a part of that group because we're in one of those transitions right now. Um, uh, since the creation of the State of Israel, I'm going to repeat this, forgive me if I said this already. Until, um, un, until the modern period, all through from the late antiquity all the way until the 19th century, um, the way to become Jewish was to convert before a tribunal of rabbis and you could become a ger. That's how you did it until the very modern period. But in 1948, in the modern period, our identity got all fractured, right? There's, and so, so to cut to the chase, in, uh, when Israel was founded, Three years later, 1951, two years later, uh, they passed a law called the Law of Return, which, which gave any person who was Jewish under the definition of the Nazis automatic citizenship in Israel. And that makes sense, right? And what was that definition? One Jewish grandparent. Huh. So, or maybe it's one Jewish great-grandparent. It's very... And it's either a, qu a quarter or an eighth. Anybody remember? But let's just say that that is a radical departure from who was a Jew prior. So that's how all the Russians could get in. That's how all the Russians could get in. Let's talk about that a little. Um, the idea of the law of return was that any Jew who'd been, who was threatened by Nazi, the Nazi regime could get refuge in Israel. That was the idea. And that is the law in Israel. So a new idea of who is a Jew is predominant in, in Israel right now because it's the law of the land. It's fought bitterly by the rabbinic establishment who want to retain their definition of how to become a Jew. And so it's a... Grandparent. A, hmm? a grandparent, thank you. One Jewish grandparent. And so... Uh, so now you can become a citizen of Israel as a Jew, completely separate from the rabbinic laws 
that predominated for 1,500 years. Right, we're in, you had to convert. Right. Okay. Now, because we're in this transition period, and we don't know what we're transitioning to, um, uh, there is huge conflict in the Jewish world, and especially in Israel, over who gets to determine Jewish status. The rabbinic establishment or the state, right? It's a giant conflict. Uh, my point, and it's a, it's, it's a fascinating discussion, my point is that uh, we are in a moment when who is a Jew is once again changing. And yes, so when the Soviet Jews started uh, coming to Israel, um, uh, they could get immediate citizenship if they could prove a Jewish grandparent. Uh, however, it got very, very messy because um, t two things came together. Russians wanted to get out of Russia, and so, and Israel wanted educated white people. And so... Um, Sounds familiar. Uh-huh. And so Israel took in, among the million-plus Russians, some 300,000 who may have no Jewish heritage. Olag, is, you know, <laughs> Oleg, is that the name? Wait, no, I'm just trying to think of the, the typical Russian name that I kept running into. Uh, uh, you know, Boris and Natasha. Boris and Natasha. <laughs> More like, you know, Yuri and uh, Oleg and, you know, these blonde kids... Uh, Who's, who have, do anyway, they are now citizens of Israel. Are they Jewish? Uh, whereas the Ethiopian Jews, who uh, are, uh, were less desirable, uh, faced an incredibly more difficult time trying to get back to Israel at a law of return. So there's all kinds of social, racial, economic forces at work. Yeah? So the rabbinical criteria is what? The mother? A, a, Jewish a Jewish mother. And if you can't prove a Jewish mother, then you must convert under their auspices. And they have very strict requirements for what you must know and commit to knowing about practicing as a Jew in order to convert. Yeah. Whereas when I perform conversions, uh, my standards are different. I have standards, but they're not the same as the Orthodox standards. And so people who convert under my auspices, their conversion is regarded as bogus, under orthodox uh, uh, blah 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 it's a complete zoo right now it's really it's 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 just a zoo nobody has control over nobody has final say over jewish status right now um, but among the orthodox in this country or only in israel was well this because the reason israel has more the orthodox in israel have more control is they control some government ministries yeah. So they have, they have some political and legal clout. Here in this country, uh, an Orthodox rabbi would, may not ex wouldn't accept the validity of my uh, supervision of a conversion, but so what? Well, maybe wouldn't marry the... Right, so I, I, when, I con when I perform a conversion with somebody and supervise a conversion, I say to them, you have to understand that if you marry someone who's Orthodox, or they won't recognize this. And so I don't, I don't uh, mince any words, you know, it's like, because for me that's, yeah, I'm not trying to, I'm just telling them the way it is. Yeah. Uh, Didn't they devise like a blacklist of rabbis? Oh, it's getting worse and worse. That they are not accepted, they're, uh, they're uh, 
conversions are not accepted? Let's just put it this way. My conversions don't even register on their radar. The Orthodox, the, the, the Orthodox political establishment in Israel, uh, as usual, is excluding people much closer to them. Rabbis who we would think of as impeccably Orthodox are now banned, uh, their conversions aren't considered acceptable uh, right now by the... Uh, uh, including the rabbi who converted Ivanka Trump. Right, right. Including, including Shlomo Riskin, who is like Orthodox royalty, but he comes from Lincoln Square Synagogue and he's like, he's, he's, Ameri- he's got some American values, so that's no good. So that's what's going on. That's what's going on. Um, and I don't know where it's going either. We have no idea. Uh, Judaism's never been monolithic. When you study Jewish history, you realize that even, even the rabbinic authority wasn't uh, comprehensive uh, through the, throughout the Middle Ages. There were, there were Karaites, who were a sect who rejected rabbinic authority but still intermarried with rabbinic Jews. And they had their own synagogues, they had their own... It's, like, it's fascinating when you study Jewish history and you realize that there's no mono, that it's only a story we tell that of monolithic... In the old days, it was... Uh, is the word hegemony? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So for you and for reform rabbis in general, if someone is in a mixed marriage, the mother is not Jewish. Are the grandchildren? Oh, now you're asking a very... This is a very important question. There is a giant rift happening in the Jewish world right now. If you look at the Bible, at the Torah, Judaism is passed down through the father. Right? It just is. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how you become Jewish, is by by being circumcised and joining in the lineage of... If you're a male and if you're a female, you do it by marrying in. Um, uh, in the Roman period, probably related to Roman law, which was matrilineal, Jewish practice and law changed. And Jew, a Jew was considered someone who was the child of a Jewish mother. This is one of the most audacious claims that the rabbinic establishment makes, which is that that's who's a Jew. And then you read the Torah, and that's not who's a Jew. But it doesn't matter, because it doesn't matter. That's, that became the norm. How, where did that come? I mean, where, where did they pull that one out? Um, well, I read a whole book about it, because I was so interested by um, a scholar. Um, I think his name, um, what is Shia Cohen? Shia, yeah. Um, and I read, he, he writes this whole excellent book trying to parse when patrilineal becomes matrilineal. And you can place it in the late 1st century, early 2nd century of the Common Era, but you, nobody can still pinpoint how or why it happened. The common theories are that, uh, I mean, the, the conventional theory, which many of you have probably heard, is that in diaspora, as the Jews were scattered and decimated after the destruction of Jerusalem, Proving paternity was extremely difficult for a dispersed and really sort of dislocated people. And so the common theory is that, and that there were a lot of rapes. 
um, and a lot of unknown parentage. A lot of Jews were enslaved. A lot of were, you know, carted around the Roman Empire the way the Romans did with their, uh, with their subject populations. And so it was a practical matter to change the rules. Otherwise, the rules of being a mamzer, which is bastard in English, and which is a very problematic status if you are strict, follow strict Jewish law, became untenable. So that's the general theory. But in the book I read, um, it's not so clear that that was the reason, because it's also, it appears that Roman law enshrined matrilinearity. So it may have simply been an adaptation to the dominant uh, uh, paradigm of that era. Just like, um, you know, why do we have last names as Jews? It's because the, the, in, in Europe, in the, starting in the late 1700s, we, they started requiring us to have last names so we could reg be registered in their tax rolls. And so Jews got last names. Christian names. No, Christian name is your first name. Christian name is your first oh. name? Well, we got family names. Yes. In England, they say that? Yeah. Uh, I'm not so sure. Yes. Really? I think, okay. she, I think she's right. Okay. But be that as it may, all I'm saying is that my conclusion reading Sarah Cohen's book was that it was much more of an adaptation to the dominant paradigm. Now that the Jews were no longer Judeans living in their, their tribal homeland, they became basically part of the Roman Empire. Um, so in 1980s, the Reform Movement and the Reconstructions Movement said, as intermarriage started to rise, they said, look, why should a Jew be the child of a Jewish mother only? A Jew could be the child of a Jewish father or a Jewish mother as long as they're raised as a Jew. And so the Reform Movement and the Reconstructors Movement passed new rules that allow a Jew, a, per, a person to be considered Jewish if they have a Jewish father or a Jewish mother. This created, this created a, a crisis in the organized Jewish world um, because now Jews raised in a Reform or Reconstructionist community considered Jewish there would not be considered Jewish right. in other parts of the Jewish world. Right. But they would be considered Jewish according to the law of return right. in Israel. And so would their children. Absolutely. Even if they're not observant. Absolutely. Right. Wow. Um, so we have now all these competing definitions. Wow. We have the Reform and Reconstructionist definition of patrilinearity or matrilinearity. We have the conservative who are sitting on the fence trying to keep it together, uh, who, who do not recognize matrilinearity, uh, patrilinearity. Then there's the Orthodox who have the, their, their traditional understanding of who is a Jew. And then there's the laws in Israel. So who is a Jew? That's, that's really the answer. It's like... I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to sort of go on this, but I have... Well, I hope I this is worthwhile to talk about. Okay. about yeah, so, so, unless they're actually baptized? I mean, I assume if they're baptized, then they're not Jewish. Well, here's what I think, Gail. Because 
it all depends who you talk to. Got it, okay. And so, as some of you have heard me say before, my current definition of who is a Jew is someone who votes with their feet. Uh-huh, right. That's... And basically says, I'm part of Jewish history and Jewish destiny. And the edges are going to be very porous. But I can't think of a better definition uh, as a functional, accurate description rather than trying to parse a legal and draw a line in the sand, which isn't working. It's just not working. You know, one of the fascinating things in Israel is you go to South Tel Aviv where most of, where tens of thousands of Filipino people who've come to Israel to work with the elderly and send their money back home to the Philippines, where the African migrants and refugees have, are living, tens of thousands of them, um, oh, Roma- um, uh, Romanians and people from Eastern Europe who made their way in. It's, like, it's an incredible polyglot place, uh, South Tel Aviv. Their kids are all celebrating Purim and speaking Hebrew because they live in a country that speaks Hebrew and celebrates Purim. So just to add another, just to add another, uh, uh, um, well, I mean, you know what I mean, throw more into the mix, it's like, who are these people? Their kids are Israelis. It's just like the, it's just like the Dreamers or the other uh, children of immigrants here in this country. They become Americans. They are in every respect Americans, except they don't have citizenship. And if they're Sudanese, they're being deported. Well, those people are from Sudan, Eritrea, and um, uh, some Somalia, too, I think. Anyway, they're not necessarily being deported. There's a ton of pressure on that right now, so that's not a done deal. You know. But it's the same situation. Same situation. It's here. Same situation. So, uh, but in Israel, here the conversation about deporting refugees and asylum seekers is about American values, Right. Right. We're a country of immigrants. In Israel, the debate is about Jewish values. And there are storekeepers. I was in Tel Aviv, um, you know, just three weeks ago. And Timna's living in South Tel Aviv. And so uh, we wander around and it's like, it's really a vibrant place. And uh, storekeepers all over South Tel Aviv have signs saying, quoting the Bible. These are uh, some of these quotes from the Bible. It's very... Uh, touches me because these these storekeepers are incredibly secular Israeli Jews that you know they wouldn't be caught dead in a synagogue except for the kids bar mitzvah you know when they show up for a day um, but they're drawing on their Jewish heritage in order to uh, speak up for these values it's really interesting and again I think the value of these kinds of descriptions is that we give up our um, schematized kind of notions about there aren't any neat boxes to put any of this in. But it is vibrant and it is Jewish. (laughs) Do you you understand what I'm saying? That's why I say it's who votes with their feet, who says I'm part of this, this is my heritage, this is my destiny, I'm in. That's how I look at it, yeah. Um, when you used the, when you said give up, what came to my mind is instead of saying give up, it's saying liberate, because we can liberate ourselves 
from the grids and the constructs and the structures that we've been conditioned to. And when, for me, when I'm able to do that, which isn't so much of the time, it's a liberation. It isn't really giving up in the sense of a loss of something. It's a sense of liberating myself from whatever has been constricting me and holding me back from a, a different kind of perspective. So. Well, thank you. And I, I like to think of that liberation, if you want to call it that, is embracing the utter messiness of life. Um, and uh, not, and the, you know, knowing that all of our systematized ideas about this is Jewish thought or this is Jewish this are useful for contextualizing but aren't a description of reality. Uh, and I think that's a really important. And our own being hooked into whatever it is. Constricted. Mm -hmm. uh, unhooking ourselves from the whatever. Right, right. We have a challenge because once we unhook ourselves from a conceptual package we that like, messy. we're faced with the messiness yeah, of it all. Exactly. Maya, um, yeah. Ira Eisenstein would say, you consider yourself Jewish, I'll consider you Jewish. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm an Ira, I am a direct descendant of Ira, who was an ultimate pragmatist. Uh, his ideals and his values he was totally passionately committed to, but they were pragmatic. It's like uh, he wasn't going to. He wasn't going to. Yeah, bless Ira's memory. Yeah. And, and how, how many? What sort of? Uh, how many rabbis are sort of following the definition or Ira's lack of definition or, or open definition? Let's say in yours. Um, is this a it, radical it's, thing or is it commonplace? It's. Um, let's see. It's it's a spectrum, right? From all the way. Right, so in some edges of the Jewish world, uh, the mixing is um, profound to the point where, wait, what makes you a Jew anymore? Right, I'm not there, right? I want to be part of a collective that I can recognize. Doors are open and we're doing Jewish in here. Right? That's sort of where I'm at in that spectrum. But if you really want to think about it, uh, I mean, my, my reflection on that is that what's happening in the Jewish world is a, uh, a microcosm of what's happening in the culture wars in all of Western civilization right now, society. So that uh, you will find a Jewish flavor reflecting every inch of the spectrum from fundamentalist to uni ultra-universalist. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, so you'll find it so... And there is unfortunately a schism right in the middle. And it generally occurs over the status of women in... Um, I mean, it, in, in life. Right. Uh, so, and and beyond that, other groups, you know, that then we start to identify whether it's it's uh, uh, LGBTQ or you know, are we going to welcome them and empower them, or are we going to try to restrict and retain the old paradigm? You see it all. Um, do you want to say anything about it, Ellen? <clears throat> so many things. Um... When I was, I don't 
14 or 15, we were at my aunt and uncle's house. My uncle was a conservative rabbi, and my aunt said, if one of my children marries a non-Jew, I will cut them off. And my sister and I, she's five years younger, we were astonished and shocked. But Aunt Carol, you love your children. She said, yes, but I could not bear to see them, my grandchild come running up to me wearing a cross around her neck. It was a given back then that intermarriage meant the loss of Jewish continuity, period. Fifty years later, we see that so many people are marrying people not of the same background and yet choosing they, they found rabbis like Rabbi Jonathan, or like I hope to be at some point. You are ask, already. I will, to ask, please, I haven't been asked to a wedding yet, but yes. I mean, I married. I, I just sent you a referral. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, if people, uh, uh, well, well, the question is, why do you want to have a rabbi? And why is it important to you? And why, and why are you, the non-Jewish person, willing to do it? And are you you know, something about Jewish history and observances and family life and will you have a Jewish home? An understanding, of course, that you'll go to the non-Jewish family for, for holidays and, and, and uh, life cycle events and stuff, but is your house going to be Jewish? And are your children going to be Jewish? And will you take them to Tat Shabbat and join a congregation and all that? And if people are willing to say it and do it, then yes, they're part of it. Um, and yeah. on, on status of women, my um, Rabbi Jonathan gave me a great question um, to do my, my thesis for um, ordination. Was um, uh, a congregant who was married before to a Jewish man, and um, he was horrible during the marriage, uh, toward the end of the marriage, and all through the divorce process, and refused to give her a, get, a Jewish. Uh, divorce and now she's engaged wants to get married again and she doesn't if, if she reopens the conversation with him then he'll do all sorts of horrible he'll, he'll harass her he'll and and now with social media he can ruin her life um is it okay and some of the research that i did is it okay not, not to get not to get, get and will you marry me anyway in a jewish ceremony and one of the a couple of the the jewish the articles i read read from the Orthodox perspective, um, one of the conclusions was we have yet to come up with a way. Oh, several Orthodox rabbis tried to figure out what they could do on behalf of women who were chained to their first marriage, even though they had a civil divorce of many, many years, where the husband was unwilling to, to issue a Jewish divorce. And um, all of those Orthodox rabbis' efforts were uh, were put down and discounted and not recognized by a larger, the, the, the wider Orthodox rabbi community. And one of the articles concluded, yeah, we have yet to come up with a solution for these women who are chained to their first husbands. To which my answer was, why the hell not? <laughs> why aren't you spending your entire life figuring out what to do? Are these women important and their children and their futures? So, <laughs> yes. So that's, you know, and on the other hand, when talking about intermarriage, 
Um, one of my colleagues who is a, a renewal rabbi, who's the spiritual head of the Unitarian Universalist Church in it's in Michigan, isn't it? In Traverse City, Michigan. So she's a ordained rabbi who leads a, a Unitarian church. I was trying to parse that. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, an ordained rabbi who leads a Unitarian congregation. And um, her reaction to the whole discussion of intermarriage is, the more the merrier. We need to expand the gene pool. We need to have new energy. We need to embrace anybody mm -hmm. who wants to come in. Mm -hmm. And in response to the, to the Africans in, in Israel, um, several people said, well, give them a choice. You know, if you stay, then you have to work and become Jewish, and, and, and you could be, you know, a path to citizenship in both religious and secular things. And why not? They're, they're obviously motivated men to have left. They're obviously strong and resilient, and they're the kind of people that we want in the country that, that's facing right. all sorts of, of, of threats. So that, and, and yet there's obviously racism and, and fear behind the, let's, you know, let's get rid of them. Oh boy. So, so uh, I want to say thank you. <laughs> Did you know she was ordained in January? I did. Yeah. I saw the, uh, the notice, publicity. that's great. Well, so I, I just want to say that I'm completely humbled by, con by current events and social uh, uh, disruption, uh, instability, change. Uh, so that's why I've decided I'm just gonna, I'm gonna tend to my vineyard. You know, because this, it's like, that's what I can do. Mm -hmm. um, try to be authentic, honor the tradition. Rabbi, uh, you know, Mordechai Kaplan's, one of his mottos was tradition has a vote but not a veto, and uh, uh, in terms of, you, you know, it's not, you don't blow it off, but so my, my particular garden here is this liberal Jewish experiment, and that's all I'm going to keep doing because I've been alive long enough to see changes I can't even describe, and they're only accelerating, and not just in the Jewish world, I mean, you know, everything everywhere, so incredible. About this ghetto, aren't there? Isn't there like an underground that kind of um, kidnaps the husband and makes him? Um, <laughs> yes. And so, really? so that yeah. but that's against American law. So even in the American. in the land of patriarchy. Yes. Uh, which well, is my what, mom even said they should do it. Which is obviously which, crazy, or which he would give it. The Orthodox world it lives in in the heart of um, women uh, can't initiate divorce and rely on their husbands by law to, um, to initiate divorce. And men who refuse to initiate a divorce, have, there is, the woman has no legal recourse. And so traditionally in Judaism, it, not just contemporarily, traditionally, the only option was to shame the husband publicly into offering the divorce or pressure him in other ways like you know, there break his a, kneecaps, uh, right? Right. There was a man so, who used to go to Davin during the day at, at Minions at Yeshiva University, and when it became known that he was refusing to give his wife a get, they barred him. They wouldn't let him come in. Right. Uh, but what, Judaism, but what, what the Jewish Orthodox establishment could do is change the law. Right. Yeah. 
Which um, and uh, you know, it's not in men's interest to change the law. So, you know, uh, narrow interest. Um, so, you know what I want to do now. Um, I, what I want to talk about, going back to the stranger, and I don't regret any of this conversation. This is always important. Is the issue with this is that the the Torah has to give a rationale, a motive, motivation for caring for the non-Judean, the non-Israelite. Um, and so there are many, many exhortations in the Torah. It says they shall be as a citizen to you, there shall be one law alike. But here's Tachlis, here's the bottom line, here's the story. The stranger, in ancient Israel, you belonged to a clan. And in your clan, the clan had a patriarch. And the patriarch was known as the Goel. Goel means redeemer. That's because that if something happened to you, you were captured into slavery or indentured because you went bankrupt or your Goel, your Redeemer, would rescue you, would pay the debt, would buy you out. So you had a protector. Furthermore, because you were part of a clan, you had legal clout, right? Because you were part of the establishment. Who is not part of the establishment in ancient Israel? Anyone who doesn't have a Goel, who are those people? The widow, because the widow's husband has passed, she has no protector. The orphan, meaning the fatherless, actually. It doesn't mean the child of, who, if the child just of a mother, but in this case, it specifically means the fatherless, because you have no protector. And the stranger, because you're not part of a clan. So, the widow, the fatherless, and the stranger are the three categories of uh, people whose names are repeated dozens of times in the Torah as requiring protection. There is no reason for you, as an Israelite, to offer them protection. There's none. What are they going to do, sue you? They have no legal standing. Right? This is a clan-based system. They have no uh, a blood feud. They have no one to go and you know send after you. you. You understand what I'm saying, right? This is really important. So in that ancient society, the the ones who didn't have a goel, a protector, have no legal recourse. They have no power. They are the powerless members of society, and the stranger is one of those categories. The stranger is the resident alien, right? They don't have the rights of citizenship. They're part of the community, but, you know, so first of all, the Torah lays out over and over and over again, no, there's one law for not just the stranger that was in the orphan, but all the time in Torah it'll say, rich and poor alike, judge fairly, do not take bribes, do not... Right, the Israelite society is doing its utmost to create a legal system 
that's based on the principle expressed in Genesis that every human being is made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. So the, it's essentially the law becomes the protector. Right. Israelite law, the law of the Torah is attempting to create a, a, a new paradigm where the law protects, not the clan. But it's still doing so in the context of a society where if you don't have a clan protector, you're, 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 in, you're, in, an, you're in a completely powerless position. So in order to create, so this is why Judaism is revolutionary, right? It creates this idea that the law is supposed to serve every individual, including those who cannot, uh, who have no protector. And that's why the Torah also creates these things called cities of refuge, where if you, create, if you have committed an involuntary homicide, accidental death, uh, manslaughter, you, uh, can retru- you can run to one of these cities of refuge, where whether you're a stranger or anybody, you can be protected against the blood feud. Because honor killings are still a giant feature of the Near East. Um, and they come, they're thousands of years old. Because, honor, because they come from a clan-based society. Where your tribe, your clan, is your group. And you are absol- they are absolutely, by tradition, they are totally committed to protecting you. Judaism expands, the Torah expands that idea. And it does, but then it needs a rationale. What's it going to do? How are you going to get this idea across? What is in my interest to care about the stranger? Right? So I'll move their boundary marker. They can't do anything to me. They, they, have, no, they have no protectors. It's like, who cares? So this, they ha- there has to be a rationale. And there are two levels of rationale. One is that God says, I'm their protector. And then the whole story, the whole myth, this is our sacred myth of what God is. God's the one who redeemed us from Egypt. Pharaoh was mistreating us. We had no protector. None. We cried out. Who became our goel? Remember this, you should know the prayer, Baruch Adonai, Ga'al Yisrael, Redeemer of Israel. We say that after we sing the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, so our whole story to, our whole story to justify, support, sustain this new paradigm that creates a, a law that applies to everyone regardless of station which is what's so astonishing about Judaism, when you think about it, um, is that we create a myth that we ourselves are, are strangers. And so it says in Leviticus, the land belongs to me, says God, because also each clan had land holdings. Your land holding was your source of wealth and stability. If you didn't have a land holding, you had to become a laborer, or sell yourself into a serv- indentured servitude, you know, but they, either a day laborer or a indentured servant, right? So land holdings was everything. 
And so it says in Leviticus, by the way, you cannot sell your land. The land belongs to me. You are but resident aliens upon it. And you cried, the children of Israel in our foundational story cried out because they had no protector. And God heard them and says, I will go el, I will redeem you, I will rescue you, I will protect you, and I will bring you to me. That's why we have four cups. That's where the four cups of wine comes from in Exodus. Isn't this cool? I, I mean, wait, I just like to boil it down here. Uh, so, so the first rationale that the Torah gives, that Judaism gives, for uh, uh, why we should care for the powerless is that God cares for the powerless. And frequently, you, there are many commandments in the Torah, many, many. They don't usually give you a rationale. They usually just say, do this, do that. You know, it's like they don't need a rationale. However, almost every commandment that involves treating the stranger well and the widow and the orphan gives a reason. And it's usually because if, because if they cry out to me, says God, I will hear their cry. Just like I heard your cry. So the other rationale besides God is their protector, so we better protect them too, or God's going to give it to us, is empathy. We are, our empathy is called for over and over and over in these laws. There is no empathy asked of us in most mitzvot. Um, but where there's no self-interest in uh, performing the deed, how are we going to be motivated? Either by fear, you know, God's, God's looking, or by um, uh, empathy by identifying with the powerless. And so the whole thrust of Judaism, the, the myth that we reenact every Passover is a story that reminds us of where we came from so that we will practice empathy and remember that there's, that there's all humans have to be treated fairly. Um, I think I'm going to talk about this again on Rosh Hashanah because uh, I don't think we can hear it enough. No. You know what it's I mean? It is breathtaking, isn't it? It's, it's unbelievable. Judaism at this point, I think we can legitimately say it's countercultural, mm. right? And it has to be, we have to like... And keep, always has been. And always has been. Yeah. What a beautiful question. Um, that, to me, is one of the beautiful mysteries of the Jewish people. There are many theories. Um, one theory is this is how we understood ourselves in Babylonian exile. We had our ancient stories, uh, and now that we were no longer on our land, um, what does it mean to define yourself as a people born in exile? Abraham is Abraham's born in a land far away. Um, oh, who has a favorite theory? <laughs> um, how is it that we defined ourselves 
as a power as as people who understand powerlessness. Yeah, well, we experienced it. That's what you're saying. So we went through being stripped of everything, mm -hmm. and we created a belief system where we would not let that happen again to us. We would organize it in such a way that empathy came out of having that experience. Presumably. You don't think so? No, no, no. I don't not think so. Okay. I just don't know. Because I think it's also legitimate to say that we may have had an astonishing founder, Moses. Mm -hmm. right. Who, the facts of Moses' life are now completely mythicized. Right? When you study Moses as a hero story, it, it's a myth. It, he, he's a King Arthur. It's like, it's, it's, it, however, that's not a reason not to think that there may not have been a Moses who had, who had, uh, like a Buddha, like, you know, same time. Uh, perhaps, um, who, uh, through, who, who communicated this inspiration. And somebody who 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 had a who had in their own time and space a true spiritual uh, awakening, which when you have that awakening, you understand that it's all one, that we, all humans must come from the same source. That that, and then you try to translate that into creating a holy society that redefines what it means to be human from cl constant clan warfare to one law under one God. It's an amazing transformation that we tend to lose the forest for the trees and forget, again, how extraordinary a change that would be from a time when there weren't universal visions when warfare was a way of life, uh, the, if, you study Bedouins, if you study Bedouin culture, you'll understand biblical culture, biblical history and culture. You know, it's like, it, they have many great qualities, but a sense of common cause is not one of them. <laughs> Each tribe is trying to get theirs from the other tribe. It's, it's like, it's a, it, that's the culture. It's, it's the... Anyway, so yeah, that, those are my thoughts, and I think your question's a beautiful question. Martha? Oh, well, coming here today uh, with this topic in mind, I was thinking of color war and camp. Color you know? war, yes. Yes, and how, and how quickly your best friends became your enemies <laughs> because they yes. were the blue team and you were the red team, and how easily it is to, have, to instill the opposite feeling among eight-year-olds. And they didn't, I, I'm sure nobody thought this was a vast social experiment, but it, um, but it, it, truly, it truly was. We had songs, we had, we were- Oh, I know. Words. It was terrible. I, I, it was terrible. I went yeah. to camp, we had color war every year at the end I, of camp. I always hated it. And I hated it because I was the second best athlete in my bunk, and my best friend was the best athlete, 
and we were never on the same team. And it was horrible for me. Oh, I, need, I still need therapy about color war. I won the spelling bee one year. I won a couple of points from Jax. <laughs> I remember Faith Rogoff freezing on the high dive and our whole team losing the Apache relay. Yeah. Don't get me started. No, and they took it so seriously. Uh, so so seriously. not only a counter-cultural notion, it's sort of counter human in a way. Exactly. Because I think, you know, evolutionary biologists and anthropologists, you know, are studying how how big a social circle can we accommodate and integrate with our brain, right? When does it become, when does it move from being relational, I know you, to being conceptual, you're a human being, therefore I should treat you well. Uh, And it's like, I was reading somewhere, it's about like, 250 or 300 people, right? I, yeah. But it's like, how many can you handle? Yeah. So yes, this is counter-human. The way Judaism describes it is that, well, I guess you could say, we have human nature, and then we, part of human nature is our ability to transcend human nature. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have these two natures mm-hmm. called the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Atov, and our job is to train ourselves to be guided by the Yetzirah Tov, which is the one that transcends our innate tribal instinct. Um, transcends. That's not the right word. Integrates and uh, expands. Because no Jew ever asks you not to consider other Jews your flesh and blood, right? It's, it's, blood is thicker than water. Ju- Judaism never goes into the... Never as opposed to Christianity in a certain way, Judaism never goes into the idea that we're all one universal people, so, you know, get over it, everybody. That's not Judaism at all. It's, but it's that we have to be able to look, look up from and beyond as well. Such a challenge. But again, that's, that's what a spiritual master would present to us, uh, uh, is... This is the path you need to work for in order, yeah, yeah. So I have a question. I'm, I'm trying to remember, but in the reading of the prophets who start like earlier, 700 something, right? Um, they talk a lot about God doesn't want just to have your food and your, you know, but it's the it's corruption, it's, it's the treatment the of the widow, the poor. You. But does it ever say anything? They ever say anything about the stranger? Oh, yes. They, they do. I have it on the back page okay, here. So, I'm sorry, I didn't read that. That's okay. No, 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 we so, didn't get there yet. Okay, so it's part of Jewish teaching then that goes back as far as we know. Right, in other words... It's not just put into the Torah later. It's there. The contemporary scholars who want to reduce Judaism to a product of the Babylonian exile... Um, they, they are suspect to me because it's clear we have enough archaeological evidence and enough historical evidence that, that, that there was an Israelite religion prior to that out, out which gave the material for whatever came out of the Babylonian exile. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm agreeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and part of the history of that is that I mean, there's a lot of convincing scholarship about how so much of Judaism as we know, Torah as we know it, emerges from the 5th and 4th century BCE. I get that. But it's not, but, but the problem with it is that when the, um, 
modern study of religion as an academic discipline was created in the late 1800s. It was created by Christian clerics. And part of what they wanted to show with their scholarship was that Judaism was really a bastardized religion that didn't really come into its own until just several centuries before Jesus, and that it's not this ancient thing, blah, 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 blah. So a lot of modern scholarship still carries the echoes of that. Um, and, uh, and that's, so I still have to wrestle with that bias, my own bias, because I actually would like to read more of it, because I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff out there that I haven't read because it's like I'm still reacting to some of the crap I grew up with in college studying about, uh, you know, uh, anyway. I'm innocent of that, but I was thinking, and I was thinking of the, the power of which the prophets speak. I just couldn't remember. If mm -hmm. about that. The I earliest prophets seem to be the 8th century BCE in the yeah, 700s, so that's right. So the only thing I would add is yeah. that it seems to me then that it's, been part of Judaism forever, probably through whatever Moses, whatever, but it's been there forever, and rooted both in whatever that experience was that we started with, and also we had a kingdom, and it didn't last long. Is I mean the northern kingdom was destroyed in 722. Right. Everyone in that was dispersed and in a diaspora where they even lost their identity. Right. Although who knows when, but gone. And then we have the Babylonian exile for the southern kingdom. Right. So we really were a lost people who knew what it meant to be without power. So I, th I think you have to add that. I'm not saying that's where it comes from. But I am saying I think you have to add that we had a double experience of knowing what it was to have power right. and then losing it. Right. Thank you. Again and again. Thank you. Yes, um, I, I would speculate that um, that it's through the crucible of exile, historically, that we bring all these ideas into, into the form that we have them now. But, but, but again, but there was a whole centuries before then of us. Uh, so, so the Babylonian exile, you could say, was a paradigm shift in which we took our previous experience and, and kind of cooked it into the Torah just as 500, 600 years later, in the destruction of Jerusalem again, the rabbis again remake Judaism. It's, it's an incredibly layered, it's like an archaeological dig, really, in right. some way. I would, I would say, though, it doesn't even mean that we put it together in, during the Babylonian exile. It may have right. been part of who we were. Right, which allowed us to then. survive in exile. Right, and then when we finally put it down in writing, in final form, this is what it looks like. But it doesn't mean it only happened then. Right. That's, that's all. Thank it, you. I think the, the, the campfire stories had to have been yes. hundreds of years old before, before there was a, the first, before there was Saul and David. They right. had to have a tradition of where did we come from? My father was in wandering Aramean. I mean, right. It, right. Right. Everyone, every tribe has its story, uh, has its origin, origin stories. Origin story. And, Okay, given that there probably wasn't a real exodus from Egypt, that it was maybe only the Levites, that's what Coleman's oh, latest There are so, so many, many theories. Hypotheses. Even if there wasn't, there was still a cohesion of people who weren't native to the land of Canaan, 
who told these stories about their origin. They had an ancestor, Abraham, who came from someplace else here. And we had to go down to Egypt, and somehow we got back here. And whether it was a, a one great man given right. the name Moses, or just everybody building on that story and crystallizing it and, and, and making it be the word of God from Mount Sinai, and that's who we are. We can't, we can't know. And yes, there's a huge difference, thinking about the, the huge difference between our tribal society that said, um, we're different, but we recognize the humanity in everyone to the, the tribes in North America who never saw the humanity of their enemies on the plains. Right. And, and um, the tribes in... in a, but then there was the Iroquois Confederacy who yeah. did figure out how to live they, together. Right, they did, mm -hmm. but the plains guys never got there. And, 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 the, um, and the human sacrifice in, in Latin America. That there was something that our ancestors, where however many generations, they came up with this whatever. And then, okay, help me with, with, with timing. Um, in, in Fritz Friedman's book, the, who, who wrote the Bible, he says, Jeremiah, and his king saw the writing on the wall that they were that 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 something was that that, that, they, that their time was their time was limited limited and and they they tried to figure out how they could get the people to turn back to God and so they found the scroll the missing fifth scroll in the temple but it may have been Jeremiah and the king writing it because Deuteronomy is is Moses repeating the story over and and with with a whole different different emphasis. There's different voices. There's different different takes on the story from the first four books. Well, from the from from the second, third, and fourth of, of Torah. In that Deuteronomy repeats the stories, but they're different, mm -hmm. different points of view, different emphasis, same basic laws of of, of treating the, the, the powerless well, but it's, it's different. And, and so then they went off into exile and Jeremiah probably went with them and came up with, okay, now we're here. And they were only there for less than 100 years. Right, well, Jeremiah went down to Egypt, actually, oh, to end his life. He went down to Egypt. He okay. didn't go to Babylonia. Um, but who went with them? Is he... I forget. Ezekiel went with them? Hmm? I don't remember who went. One of the prophets went with them. Yeah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel went with them and may have offered them comfort in exile and helped them write down. And like they took the fifth scroll with them and, okay, what are our stories? Where do we come from? We need to write this down so that while we're in exile, because they didn't know it was going to be so short. Um, well, we're in exile, so we can teach our children, so we can stay together. I mean, it, it's... 
So, so there's all the his, there's all the efforts to put together a historical timeline of how and when the Bible was uh, constructed and codified. Uh, we have some good ideas, um, but I, as you know, I have found it, and I I like studying that stuff. It's important to me. It's really important to me, and it's not my goal to understand that. It's my goal to have that inform what I know. My goal is to study the Torah as uh, sacred literature. Yeah. And uh, because as literature, what we find in the finished product is dozens and dozens of references to how we're supposed to treat the stranger. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was important before, it was important during, it was important after. And that's so, so I like looking at it in, a, in that literary context. And so look at the bottom of the third page. It says, God cares for the powerless, so must you. Remember that you were once a stranger. These are the calls to, for rationale that I want us to look at. Where are you again? The bottom of the third page. Back, front, back. So in the Ten Commandments, in the first iteration of the Ten Commandments, it says, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath unto Yudhevavhe thy God. In it thou shalt not do any manner of work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. So the Ten Commandments make it clear doesn't give you a reason why, but just that they get a Sabbath too. Again, I'll say, I have a feeling this was an absolutely revolutionary idea. Um, then in Mishpatim, next Parsha, right after, it says, And a stranger thou shalt not wrong, neither shalt thou oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That's the call to empathy. That's a refrain, right? That's, and then turn the page again. A few verses later in Mishpatim, it says, And a stranger shalt, shalt thou not oppress, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing as you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So that's even more explicit. Why not oppress a stranger? You know, why not? It's not the right thing to do. Right. There's no self-interest here. Not if you identify just with your clan. Um, And so you have to transcend self-interest and identify with that person. Um, And then it says again, right after that, six days shalt thou do thy work. But on the seventh day thou shalt rest, that thine ox and thine ass may have rest, and the son of thy handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. It's a beautiful word. Uh, uh, that was Exodus twenty-three, twelve. Even the animals get started. Even the animals. Yep. Anything that is under your um, authority. Right. Because the land gets rest. Mm-hmm. The land gets rest too. So it really transcends humanism in that sense. To ascend to a to a indigenous people's understanding of our being part of everything. 
Um, hold on, I just want to look up... Uh, Fahina Fash. Same word that God uses for what God was after resting on the seventh day. So isn't that the rationale, in a way? It's a divine... You're transmitting something divine. God did this, and now we need to... That's right. We have to be like God. Yeah? I just... I am so sure that whatever the history, that along the way, apart from the prophets, we know that there was what I can only call divine revelation mm -hmm. again and again and again. And the history may be part of what pulled everybody else in, okay, who didn't have the direct experience. But I think there were teachers again and again. And there was the law of Yud Hei, the law of Yud of Moses, the law of Yud Hei Vav Hei, the revelation at Mount Sinai. Whose job was it to communicate that in each generation? Yeah. The prophets. Yeah, there was a prophet school. Well, B'nai Hanavi'im, the the pro. Let me put it this way: in ancient Israel, before the destruction of the first temple, um, prophecy. Navi, which means being a spokesperson for God, was an established social, an established, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, role, social role in the society. In other words, there were, and we know about it because it, they talk about B'nai HaNavi'im, who were bands of prophets, who would make music and sing ecstatically so that the prophecy could come down. They were oracles. Um, they, we know about Elijah, and we know about Elijah passing the mantle on to Elisha, literally, this, this hairy cloak that he wears. And then we have this, the received s speeches of the prophets, starting with Amos in, um, say, the, around 800 or later, uh, where their job in oh before that we have Natan the prophet in King David's court and Natan's job is to speak truth to power so he goes to David when David has done a, has 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 mistreated a powerless person uh, and says to him you did wrong and he's not afraid for his life because the king is not God and David David repents. Uh, so the prophet is like the, is, is the representative of God and of the law of Moses. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> so as we know from, the, from uh, Jeremiah's narrative in particular, uh, the prophets were mistreated by the royal establishment frequently, thrown in jail. So Natan, David's prophet, doesn't get in any trouble in that story. But Jeremiah finds himself thrown in jail for saying things that the king didn't like hearing. Um, but he has to. He has to. He's compelled to. It's part of, it, it's a position. The, the, prophets, the prophets are also not hereditary in ancient Israel, nor do they come from the elite. Uh, they come from all over the place. Uh, who becomes a prophet? It's a fascinating thing to consider this Again, this, this role in ancient Israelite society, which was to remind people of the law of Moses. Yeah. Well, in some of the, um, some of what I've been hearing in the various forms that I've been coming to synagogue, so this phrase of God intoxicated. Mm -hmm. And I, I really had no idea of what that could possibly mean. 
And I'm beginning to have a little sense of what that could possibly mean. And, and my little sense of it is I'm perceiving uh, life on a slightly different plane. I'm having a, a larger view. I'm not having my complete just ego or protective view. And however I got there, who knows? Who knows how I got there? But um, I, I, I like that. <laughs> Nicely <laughs> that put. Mm -hmm. um, there's something running through my mind, this whole discussion. And when you said, so just stop me if I'm going off on a tangent. When you said that Rome was matrilineal. Roman, Roman law. Roman law. I was really. And I, I don't mean I don't mean Roman. Society. I don't mean it was a matrilineal, a matriarchy. Okay. I mean that uh, inheritance, inheritance was determined. And things like that. But I suppose any any validity that women have in society always like amazes me. Oh, really? And it just interested me. So here's my weird associations. Okay, it interested me that some of Jewish society and Jewish law was immersed in that culture. Mm -hmm. For centuries. Right. And I do have the perspective that women very often are able to have a more empathetic, larger perspective than men do who are protecting the fort and mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing. So this is my weird association. And I'm really fascinated is how did Roman law come up with having it matrilineal? Was it because they could prove it? Was it I don't know. I have to reread yeah. that. Yeah. Um, because it didn't give women uh, uh, an enhanced status. Yeah. Uh, it, it was, the, it, but it was, did have to do with the laws of inheritance and, yeah. Uh, yeah. and, and I have and, to, I would have to read more about yeah. it. I have that book on my shelf. I can go look at it again. <laughs> so my other question is, how much of strangers are women to men? You know, in this quality, equality, all of this kind of thing. Because obviously, Judaism being formed in such a patriarchy and, and society that was organized around the male protector. and the Right. I mean, you actually shocked me when you said widows are they're out. Widows rely on the kindnesses of okay. strangers, of the others, yeah. And that's because economically the man who's supposed to be pulling his weight is... No, 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 that means that uh, women don't, according to the patriarchal system, women are members of the, a man's household. They, aren't, they don't have individual station. That's why in the book of Ruth, they, they, when Ruth and Naomi come back from abroad, they have to find a protector. So a household doesn't exist without a man. There is in no this, yeah, in the, exactly, right. right. And it's not a nuclear household. It's, it's, no, no, no. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, right, women, women in the Torah, uh -huh. while they have complete individuality, I mean, you read their stories, they're not shrinking violets, they're not, but in the system, they don't have, uh, they, and they also wield a lot of power, but it's soft power. It's through. It's, right, it's, right. It's influence. Classic. <laughs> and, yeah. and protecting 
the powerless appeals to men's higher instinct or mm -hmm. the, use your force for, for good to, to protect and not... Moses, in order to be God's agent, has to go, and the, you know, the rabbinic commentary in this is very, very clear, has to go practice being a shepherd because he has to go learn how to care for living beings. He's grown up in the palace. He's never had that responsibility. And so in order to prepare to take a human flock with him, he has to learn how to care for, for his creatures. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, shepherds are really, because it was a shepherding society, shepherds are, the, the, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Yeah. You lead us me beside still waters. You, you protect me. You guide me. Uh, yes, we... Uh, uh, I just read this recently and heard it again yesterday that we think of shepherd as a bucolic kind of thing. But in those days, the shepherd was the hero because he was out in the wilderness for... a months at a time with the flock and he was the one with the with the rod and the staff and the stone and he was the one who protected all the sheep from from the predators from the predators he was, he was the hero yes. Thank so you. that's why the lord is my shepherd is god protect god is my protector right right thank you thank you yeah yeah so yes it's our higher innate it's our innate our nature is just is not just self-interest Right? We, that humans are more, more than that. So we're being commanded to rise to that, rise to that level over and over again. Quick question. Rob? You mentioned um, uh, the prophets being able to come from sort of any station. Any station. So I'm just curious where that comes from. So was it from their doing? Because to me, that's also just another non-hierarchical... It looks like um, uh, you, one had the gift of ecstatic prophecy. And there were many prophets. The, so again, there's a discussion in Deuteronomy about how do you know if someone's a false prophet or not. It's like, it's not clear. Uh, I, I wouldn't presume to, it's not clear at all. But the body of literature that we have, called the section of the Tanakh, called the Nevi'im, called the prophets, are the refined and, you know, worked over by scribal schools for generations, refining the message of the, the certain prophets whose, whose oracles be, were preserved. Um, but how you became a prophet, it was because you had the gift, you were called it's just interesting. In, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah in Isaiah, and in Ezekiel, they all describe their call. And they were like, wow, who these me? are. Really? Who, me? You want me to do this? You know, it's uh, fascinating. But that's also sort of, um, in, in a way, in a way, that's breaking down barriers with the other as well, right? If there is no. If there's no hierarchy, you know, only the rabbis can be the prophets, or whatever it might mm -hmm. be, or only this clan can be the prophets. It's open to all. Fascinating, and, isn't it? And it's because on the one hand, there was the tribe of the Levites who were the priestly caste, 
and that was by heredi- uh, right. her- heredity. And yet there was this other social category called being a prophet, which was something you were called to. Right. It, it just, uh, it, it, you had a calling, it arose in you. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. They had, yeah, they yeah. had trades, and then they were called. They had trades, and yeah. one is a shepherd. Um, let's see, Amos is a shepherd. One of them worked with One priests. is a priest. I mean, some of them are priests in the temple. Ezekiel's Jer- a priest. Jeremiah. Jeremiah is also... Was it priest? I don't recall. So, yeah, yeah, they we... All, that's fascinating. To do. So, I, I was just wondering, do they go into prophetic mode and then go back and tend their sheep? You know? It appears that way. Okay. Yeah, it appears that they, it appears that they go that they go into that they say, uh, "Here is the word of the Lord," yes. and out and it and came through them. Yes, yes. yes. it's a different model than in some other. Uh, you know, no, I, you're a monk and you go to the mountain and you right. Draw, that's right. Draw from life. They they they, they traveled. They they not only spoke in the in the in the population centers. They went. They traveled around, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and each one's different. I mean, Alicia, yeah. uh, uh, Elijah's assistant in the Ablecha, what does he do? He's, uh, he leaves, he's, he he's always, he's working in the, the field with the ox. And, and Elijah, Elijah comes and he, and he says goodbye to his parents and he leaves. So they were, they, they also appeared to be also a category of wandering bands of prophets also. And, and Elijah and Elisha and Elisha did miracles. Right. Uh-huh. Um, the a lot of great stories. Wonderful yeah. stories. Um, so, uh, so it would be safe to say that the institution of prophecy probably changed over the centuries. It may have gotten more established. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a, just like the, there's, there's another category in Deuteronomy co- which are called the, the, the Levites the, are also called scribes. So it appears that within the temple, the people serving the temple, a subcategory of them were in charge of the sacred literature and maintaining the scrolls. And so, uh, and again, it's not a fixed point because it, it appears to change over time. And eventually... The, the, the role of being the keepers of the scribal literature, those people, Sofrim, become known as the rabbis. But that's much later. So, yeah. Let's read a few more of these. Um, and the reason I'm showing them, look at Leviticus 19.10. It's, it's on the... It's on the uh, do you see where we are, everybody? And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather the fallen fruit of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am Yodhevav, your God. The reason I put that in is because it appears that in these kind of commandments, it will end with, I am Yodhevav, your God. Uh, as opposed to so many of the other commandments which don't state that. So here, look at the next one. And if a stranger sojourn with thee in your land, ye shall not do him wrong. The stranger that sojourneth with you, 
shall be unto you as the home born among you, and thou shalt love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am yod heh vav your God. That's an amazing one. We're supposed to love the stranger as ourself. And when, this is in the center of the book. Right, this is in Kedoshim. And when you reap the corner, the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corner of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleaning of the harvest. Thou shalt leave him for the poor and for the stranger. I am yod heh your God. That's frequently connected to the stranger commandments. And now in the second iteration of the Ten Commandments, the rationale for Shabbat is expanded. Listen, this is really, this is beautiful. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath unto you, Tevavhe thy God. In it thou shalt not do any manner of work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And why? And thou shalt remember that there was a, that thou was a servant in the land of Egypt. And yod thy God, brought you thee out thence by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore yod thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. This one blows me away because the reason we are doing Shabbat isn't because the world was created in seven days, which is what it says in Exodus, but it's because we have to practice treating everyone the way God treats everyone. Um, that, and we were strange in the land. Of, it, we were, we were uh, uh, slaves in the land of Egypt, and we have to keep the Sabbath day to remember that. Zecher Yat Mitzrayim. Here's another one. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For yod your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty, the awful, who regardeth not persons, meaning who doesn't uh, play favorites, nor taketh reward. He executes justice for the fatherless and widow, and loves the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye, therefore, the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So this is an incredible one. Circumcising the foreskin of our heart means cutting the sheath off of our heart. That's what it refers to. And, uh, and be no more stiff-necked. So we're supposed to cut the sheath off of our heart and not be stiff-necked. Instead, what are we, I mean, this is my favorite one because it's so clear. Instead, we have to be like God. I just, yeah, I just got it. Taking care of the stranger makes you feel wonderful. And being God feels wonderful because oh. you're always embracing and caring for life. So you could see it as putting yourself into that emotional state. Mm -hmm. God is our shepherd and our redeemer and our protector. Yeah. Um, the whole idea of being using empathy as a motivation for caring for the stranger. 
Another way you can look at that is you can turn it around into the principle you care for what you care for. So that once you begin to care for something or somebody, the empathy comes. It doesn't need to come first because you can do an action without having ah, yes. feeling mm -hmm. in advance. And that action itself has the potential to bring about the feeling that you're that you have, which in this case would be empathy. Thank you. So do it, and it'll nurture and awaken that part of your being. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, Deuteronomy 14, 29. And the Levite, because he hath no portion nor inheritance with thee, the Levite doesn't have land holding. And the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are within thy gates shall come and shall eat and be satisfied, that Yudhebhavi thy God may bless thee in all the work of thy hand, which thou doest. I chose this one again because it gives you a rationale. Why are you supposed to do this? Because God will bless you. And thou shalt rejoice before Yudhebhavi thy God, thou, thy son, thy daughter, thy manservant, thy maidservant, and the Levite in thy gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are in the midst of thee, in the place which Yudhebhavi thy God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. You shall remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and thou shalt observe and do these statutes. There again is the, you know, there's this, you don't just do it, remember. Thou shalt keep the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. After that, thou hast gathered in from thy threshing floor and thine winepress. And thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou, thy son, thy daughter, thy manservant, thy maidservant, and the Levite, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow that are within thy gates. Um, now, here's an... Yeah? I just saw the next one. Thou shalt not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother. And thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because thou wast a stranger in his land. How about that one? Now, there's more context to that, but I just like it. It's like, whoa, that's why you, sh that's why you shouldn't ab abhor an Egyptian? Thou shalt not oppress a hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. Okay, this is the day laborer. Yes. All right? We're talking about day laborers. In that same day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and setteth his heart upon it, meaning he needs that money, lest he cry against thee unto Yodhebave, and it be sin in thee. So this is, again, for me, the, the important thing. It's like, why not stiff him? What's he going to do? He hasn't got, he has nothing. Right? No protector. Who's the protector? Once again, it's he's going to cry to God. And then you have in your background the story of the Jews in Egypt. And they cried out from their burden. And Yudhebhave heard their cry. So all of that gets reiterated over and over again. Um, Thou, sh thou shalt not pervert the justice due to the stranger. 
or to the fatherless. Do not pervert justice, nor take the widow's raiment to pledge. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh thy God redeemed thee from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. It couldn't be clearer. Uh, you have to, when you glean your, when you leave your, um, again, I'll remind you that if you didn't have land, you couldn't go to the supermarket. So you needed a source of food. So the landowners are commanded to not beat all the olives off their olive trees, not collect all the grapes from their field, not to leave the corners of their uh, wheat fields for the gleaners and the poor. Why? Because you were a bondman in Egypt. And thou shalt rejoice in all the good which thy God hath given you to your house, you, the Levite, the stranger that is in the midst of thee. When thou hast made an end of tithing, all the tithe of thine increase in the third year, which is the year of tithing, and has given it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the fatherless, and to the widow, that they may eat within thy gates and be satisfied. Then you shall say before Yudhivava your God, I have put away the hallowed things out of my house and given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, according to all thy commandments which thou hast commanded me. I have not transgressed any of thy commandments, nor have I forgotten them. Cursed be he that perverteth the justice due to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Okay, so that's, it's a pretty impressive list, isn't it? Then we get it to the prophets. <coughs> Jeremiah, nay, but if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute justice between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt. Then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Jeremiah, thus saith Yodhevavhe, execute ye justice and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. For if you do this thing indeed, then there shall enter in by the gates of this house kings sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, he and his servants and his people. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, <laughs> I swear to me, saith Yudhevavhe, that this house shall become a desolation. Ezekiel, Behold, the princes of Israel, every one according to his might, have been in thee to shed blood. In thee have they made light of father and mother. In the midst of thee have they dealt by oppression with the stranger. In thee have they wronged the fatherless and the widow. The pe uh, let's see, I'd have to look at the Hebrew, but he's saying, look, we're in exile because of the way you treated these people. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the stranger unlawfully. Zechariah, thus hath Yodhevave of hosts spoken, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother and oppress not the widow nor the fatherless nor the stranger the poor and let none of you devise evil against his brother in your heart. Malachi, 
and I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and adulterers and false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, and the turn aside the stranger from his right. And fear not me. So this is exactly describing our president. For everything. Oh, God. We got it. Yep. Yep. He is really the epitome of low nature. He really is. He's a walking Yetzirah, isn't he? Listen to this beautiful psalm. O yod thou God to whom vengeance belongeth, shine forth. Well, it's a vengeance psalm. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render to the proud their recompense. How long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They gush out, they speak arrogancy. All the workers of iniquity bear themselves loftily. They crush thy people, O yod and afflict thy heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. And they say, yod will not see. Neither will the God of Jacob give heed. That's why I included this one. You see, unless there's a critique to be made about why we should care. If, because I don't see your God doing nothing. You know, I'm, I'm doing just fine here. And uh, so it's part of the, how should I say this? There's, one could easily, from the evidence of, our, of human history, declare that this, that this idea of God being our protector is complete bunk, right? I mean, for Jews, it's just, it's just a look at the Holocaust, right? It's like, come on. And yet, we are asked to believe and affirm that there's a moral law in the universe and that those who align themselves with that moral law will be ultimately in the cause of right. Like, that's a statement of faith, everybody. You know, that's not, a, that's not an empirical observation. It's, a, it's an aspiration. And I, it's an aspiration I want to continue to pursue uh, because it f- feels deeply like the right thing to do. It's more than that. I mean, when you're in that state of being able to feel it, it feels true and profoundly, deeply satisfying more than to be in that, in line with that. I, I, that's all. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's what has kept it alive for all these years, mm-hmm. for enough of that experience. That right. The fact that we can't empirically prove it doesn't mean it's not real. Yeah. And I think it's real enough for enough people. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Martin Luther King felt it. Right. So, if Certainly enough many people, of us way less than that. If enough <laughs> people embrace this, or in the, you know, this this a- aspiration, then we can create this reality. That's the way it goes. Yeah. One more, Psalm one forty six. The reason I'll share with you why I'm sharing this one. Who executeth justice for the oppressed, who giveth bread to the hungry. Yodhevave looseth the prisoners, Matira Surim. Yodhevave openeth the eyes of the blind, Kachivrim. Yodhevave raises up those that are bowed down, Zokevkavukim. 
Yod Hevavi loveth the righteous. Yod Hevavi preserveth the strangers. God upholdeth the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked God maketh crooked. The reason I shared this psalm is that the rabbis use this psalm as a very important proof text. Because the rabbis say, just as God feeds the hungry, so you must feed the hungry. And they're saying, this is what it means to be made in God's image. So this is another profound concept of Judaism. That if we're made in God's image, it has to mean something. But it, doesn't mean, it has nothing to do with our appearance, obviously. Uh, so it must have to do with our ability to act in this, uh, in this transcendent way. Just as God frees the prisoners, so must you free the prisoners. Just as God opens the eyes of the blind, so must you. Just as God raises up the fallen, so must you. Just as God preserves the stranger, so must you. So um, the rabbis use this as one of, their co- you know, one of their core texts about what it means to be made in God's image. And the morning blessings. Right. The morning blessings also come from, are rooted in this psalm, because the psalm predates the morning blessings by many centuries. So when I understood that that's what it means to be the chosen people, that now I'm very happy with that. You know, before that, I was very unhappy with that, but now it makes sense. Right. This is what we're chosen to do. Right. We're not chosen because uh, uh, we're um, genetically superior. We're, we're actually chosen to take on this task, this spiritual path. Mm-hmm. That's what it means to accept the Torah. Yeah. Right. We're not just to- chosen to be, we're actually chosen to do. Right. Which really, it's really different. It's really different. We're chosen to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, could I share a little anecdote that's only marginally relevant? Sure. <laughs> My daughter made a match between a friend who was desperate to have a child and another friend whose rent on her embryo was being raised. And <laughs> in the freezing, in the... Yes, you have to store, you have to pay for rent like a couch if you're storing a, a couch. And, um, and they got together and a child was born on Christmas Day and she named him Shepherd. Because he shepherded her for, through a very difficult period. So, so, your, so one person's <laughs> frozen embryo was implanted in the other person's womb? Is that? Yes, yes. But even better, if you want to have the story, the, uh, the one who donated the embryo is herself a single mother who's, who had um, a donated uh, sperm donor. And now this other child... Is an is a full sibling, and she. Now I'm getting all confused with she's here, but the mother of the two little girls. Um, her has no parents. She had their her child. Her children have no grandparents, and the grandparents of the newborn baby are happy to take on this extra oh, job. Oh, lovely! Of, oh, lovely! Of being pseudo-grandparents to their grandson's siblings. Great, they, and they named the baby Shepherd. That's beautiful. Shepherd is what she named the baby. And they're going to call 
they're going to call each other super cousins because they're not, because they decided that since they're not being brought up together, they have a special kind of relationship. They're super cousins. I love that. They had to find a name for I have to say, I'll close with this, which is that um, in the course of my adult life, and certainly in my rabbinic life, I've had to ask the question over and over and over again, because it's changing so fast, what's a family? Um, And rather than come up with an external, again, an external rigid boundary, I want to come up with a sort of true feeling uh, uh, definition, which is, what's a family? It's when people get together to be a family. And uh, it's only going to get more more whacked out like that. It's... uh, isn't it? I think it's, it's marvelous. Amazing. It's just amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? Yes, so my rabbinical association recently, um, thanks to some very smart rabbis who do the kind of stuff I would never have the patience for, developed a whole really clear description of um, uh, artificial insemination, egg donor, in terms of personal status. How do you then define is that baby Jewish? If they were born to a Jewish mother, but the egg came from a non-Jewish mother and the sperm came from a non-Jewish, is that baby Jewish? And so we had to like decide. So our decision is that yes, that the, the obviously it would be logical that the bearing mother right. is the, the, the mother, right. Yes. Um, isn't that something? <laughs> it's a living tradition anyway. when you, again, when you liberate yourself from the sort of existing standard. Mm -hmm. And what comes out of that? And that's the thing that actually can give me the kind of faith that you were talking about before, that, you know, the Martin Luther King, the arc is long, but it bends toward justice. Right. You the, know, it's like, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So the whole, the whole thing that you were talking about, about the, you know, the force that believes in good, that that's going to prevail, and if we all have that aspiration, that makes it <clears throat> more likely. This right. is a wonderful example of that. Thank you. By the way, he didn't say that. He um, didn't... Coined no, that. that was from the... It was from an abolitionist preacher in the 1850s. Right, whose name was... Uh, Thomas something. I have it all written down. Yeah. But the history of that phrase, right. from this abolitionist preacher to King, yeah. to the Oval Office rug that Obama had uh, specially made, is a lovely story. And to Bending the Ark, the organization. Right, and now there's a Jewish stores. organization called Bend the Ark. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So next time I want to share a whole, totally different story, uh, which is um, there's a Jewish rabbi, Alicia Benabuya, who's called in the Talmud, Acher, which means the other, because he became an apostate. And there are these stories about him. I thought we'd read them together and just reflect on them. But in the, in, in the meantime, I just want to reiterate, um, we have a revolutionary and incredible teaching here uh, that can sustain us uh, in these times. Ellen. There's a new book just published in English
by Yochi Brandes, who did the third book of Kings. This one is called The Other. And she's writing from the vantage point of Rabbi Akiva's wife, but it's about that circle. Really? It's, oh, no, it's called The Orchard. The Orchard. The Orchard, okay. because Rabbi Akiva and Acher and the others went up to heaven and, and didn't all survive. And Rabbi Akiva is the only one who survived intact, or did he? I'll have those. Intact, so but I'm bring that in, because we're going to look at that text. Who, who wrote it? Oh. Yochi Brandes, B-R-A-N-D-E-S. And um, oh, anybody come to the day you were running the last one? Um, Lex Rothberg. Uh, and a guy named Dan Liebenson have a podcast called Judaism Unbound. And they just had, and Dan is the translator. And he, they just talked for 48 minutes about this book. And wow. why nice. It and it's a podcast, huh? Judaism Unbound is the podcast. Judaism the Unbound. It's and they're talking about this book on the podcast. It's a wonderful podcast. Okay. Sounds great. Could you remind me 